We're continuing this morning in 1 Peter. So the New Testament lesson from 1 Peter chapter 2 is the text. We're looking at what we might call ethics for exiles. Ethics for exiles. Be a good title for the whole book of 1 Peter. Last week, we saw that as strangers and aliens, we are to abstain from disordered desires. And Peter said to live beautiful lives, lives of beauty, which though that may result in vilification now, will nonetheless cause God to be glorified in the day of visitation. So here today in verses 13 through 17, what Peter's doing is he's fleshing out now what a beautiful life looks like. This is what beautiful living is. And so we'll make three points. Subjection in verses 13 and 14. Silence in verse 15. And servants in verses 16 and 17. And there's an outline on the, uh, in the middle somewhere of your bulletin. There's a page there. So first then, subjection. First thing about the beautiful life. First thing about the beautiful life, be subject. Maybe not the first word we would use. It's the first word Peter uses. Be subject, the text begins, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, or the word is actually creature. So, you have this general principle at the outset of the text. Wherever you have a human institution, right, the school, the government, whatever. You have a human institution. They set up authority structures. The basic principle of the beautiful life is to subject yourself to those authority structures for the Lord's sake. It's a remarkable opening. Be subject to every human institution. Peter does not say, be subject to the human institutions when they agree with your sensibilities. Or be subject to every human institution that you like. His opening foray is be subject to every human institution. Now, these are people who are being harassed. They are facing what appears to be sporadic persecution, threats to their employment, threats to their property. What Peter will soon call in chapter 4, they are undergoing a fiery ordeal. Nero is the emperor here at the time. Now, this is probably before he started torching Christians in public. But even still, he was an inept and a poor and a foolish ruler who happened to claim to be divine. You think our leaders are tyrants? There's an amazing kind of lack of perspective that people can have. To these people, to these Christians, in this situation, the first word on the beautiful life, on the state, is be subject. Submission. It's a kind of dirty word in our day. Because it, in American ears, it rings a bit too passive. Maybe more than a bit too passive in the years of 
modern Western people who are used. We are used to this, right? We are used to robust criticism of our leaders, to resistance, to assembling, to protest grievances, right? We are a people who have been accustomed to a bill of rights. And if we are a people whose citizenship is not in heaven, whose politics are not first and foremost rooted in heaven and in the heavenly city, then the earthly political scene gets really big, fills up our vision. So it seems then that this subjection, especially in the social setting of these Christians, it seems unreasonable. It's too compliant. It concedes too much to an idolatrous, overreaching, and abusive state. But I can assure you, Peter does not think this submission is a form of weakness. There's a number of reasons for this, of course. First, Scripture makes it clear in other places that this subjection is never absolute. It's never absolute. The people of God can and have disobeyed the state. If the state commands what God forbids, you heard that in the Old Testament lesson from Daniel, bow down and worship this statue. Then Daniel's friends disobey. If the state forbids what God commands, do not preach the gospel in this name any longer, Acts chapter 5. Then the apostles disobey and they say, we must obey God rather than men. If the civil authority oversteps into idolatry, the church's subjection ends. Now, of course, finding the line is not always as easy as the two examples I just gave. But the principle's clear. The principle's clear. Subjection is never absolute. And it is certainly never worship, which is what the Roman state would soon come to demand of the church. Secondly here, This subjection is a voluntary act. It is done, and we will see this later, it is done by free people, not by slaves. It is done by people whose dignity and whose privileged status in Jesus Christ is utterly secure. And precisely because that is so, precisely because their citizenship is in heaven, they willingly place themselves under, which is what be subject means. This is an action we take freely. We are to be subject, notice the text says, not for the state's sake, right? not for Caesar's sake, but for the Lord's sake. Don't miss that in the text. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creature or institution. The duty here is a duty of piety. It's a thing done unto the Lord. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 13, it's a thing done for the sake of your own conscience. For the sake of not malforming your own conscience. Subjection to authority. In this case, unreasonable authorities is an act of worship. Notice. Notice the next phrase here. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, the word there is creature, every human creature. So this is an obligation just rooted in the created order. Be subject to every human creature. 
Because human creatures bear the image of God. Right? And those who represent human institutions, whether they are Christians or non-Christians, deserve our honor and respect. It's a first principle. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in the chapter on the civil magistrate, makes this point. It says that infidelity, when it speaks of the, the Christian's obedience to the magistrate, it says infidelity or difference in religion does not nullify the just commands of the magistrate. So let me put that in modern language. If the magistrate's an atheist or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Satanist, it doesn't nullify the just and lawful authority of the magistrate. That's part of the Reformed Confessions. Our disposition and our demeanor is first and foremost to be subject to every human creature as image bearers of God. Whether it be, Peter says, to the emperor as supreme, right, the president, or to governors sent by them, to some delegated authority, all the different ranks of authority. Even if there's some weakness and woundedness, if there's some basic adequacy in keeping public order, we subject ourselves. And we do it as an act of worship for the Lord's sake. That's subjection. Now, the second point here is silence. And here we're given the motive, the motive for the subjection. Why do we do this? And it is not because we're blindly dutiful or we're naturally compliant, or we're just rule-keeping followers. It is because, verse 15 says, it is the will of God that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice how subtle Peter is here. This is clever. He's basically said the authorities that you're going to have to submit to are, in many cases, probably going to be foolish Ignorant people. Again, it's not hard to hear here already the echoes of Christians beginning to be accused of hating mankind and of subverting the public good because they won't worship the gods. But those accusations are going to probably come just a little bit after our text, a little bit later in the first century. But it's clear that even now, these Christians are being falsely accused. They are being slandered. They are facing social ostracization and humiliation. They are being falsely accused of wrongdoing. And Peter says, they're doing good. What does he mean by they're doing good? In this case, doing good means this. Their civil obedience. Not their civil disobedience. But their civil obedience will act like a muzzle. It will silence the ignorance of fools. So here, civil obedience has the subversive character of changing the perception that the state and the broader culture has of the Christian community, of the early Christians. Peter's thinking goes something like this. We're going to show the state and the culture at large. We want them to think like this. How much of a threat to the common good can these Christians be? How much of a threat to the good order of society can they be if they so freely and willingly obey the authorities? This is why 
We are willing to give the civil authorities a great deal of rope. We give them the benefit of the doubt. We give them the benefit of the doubt in the time of a pandemic. Right? We want the notion, even a misguided notion, that we don't love our neighbors or we don't seek the common good or that we're not working for the good of the civilization. We want that dispelled. What does Jesus say to his disciples in a situation where he knows they're going to lose some of their liberty? He says, if someone corrals you to go a mile with them, go two miles with them. That's anti-American right there. Somebody forgot to give Jesus his pocket constitution. When somebody corrals you to go a mile, you go a second mile? I haven't heard any Christians say this in the last hundred days. If someone slaps you on the cheek, you turn the other one? Yeah, this is when you're in a position under these authorities that are being abusive. This is the fundamental demeanor. We are to be servants who serve the common good and give every possible benefit of the doubt to all human beings. Remember, he starts off not exactly with the state. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creature. And then the first example is emperors. Servants who serve the common good freely in an act of worship, subjecting ourselves. And that brings me to the third point here. Servants. And here we have something that can seem a bit jarring. Maybe contradictory at first. Or at least something of a paradox. Peter says this. Live as people who are free. Be subject. Live as free people. Nothing Peter has said. Nor anything that he will say nor any aspect of Christian ethics, is contrary to human freedom. Not the subjection of servants to masters, husbands, the wives to husbands, church people to elders, the subjection of all to the civil authorities, the mutual subjection of Christians one to another. None of this is contrary to human freedom. Quite the opposite, in fact. Right? This Ordered subjection, these are the actions of legitimately free people. We will, Lord willing, in in the next couple weeks, see Peter address some of these different social relations. But here, he has subjection to the civil magistrate in view. He's already sort of turned his eye out to these other relationships in the world, but he's focusing on this magistrate situation. Live as free people. Now, freedom itself is deeply distorted, debased, degraded in our culture. And recapturing, recapturing what true freedom is, is crucial. It's crucial to restoring any sense of moral sanity in our time. Right? Freedom, freedom, and this should come as news to no one, but it needs to be said. Freedom is not the ability to do what you want or to follow your heart or to do you. Instinctive animals pretty much live that way. Our debased freedom creates slaves. It does not create free people. Right? Shallow self-expression. 
sexual or otherwise, is often a sign of the deepest bondage. What is needed is for our broken selves to be healed in the new self that we put on in Jesus Christ. The self that restores the beauty and the liberty of the image of God, an image which we ourselves have defiled. Freedom, then, for us is liberation from sin. Liberation from death. Liberation from the powers that control and destroy us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a mistake to let the rhetoric of freedom be captured by primarily political terms. Freedom is deliverance from the curse of the law, from our own self-righteousness. From the river of delusions we continually tell ourselves about our own goodness. Freedom, then, is precisely liberation from our own mixed and corrupt and divided heart and from the narrow, narcissistic confines of our own ego. Freedom is liberation from the constant need for self-assertion. And from all the alternative fantasy worlds we are constantly creating for ourselves. Freedom is the restoration of human creatures to reality itself in Jesus Christ. And thus freedom is the freedom or the moral ability, the strength to do what is right. It entails the bending back into order of our twisted, harsh, intractable, disoriented will. A sovereign renewal of the will in the true, in the beautiful, in the good. A reorientation toward God in life through Jesus Christ. In short, as we heard in the gospel lesson, it's the truth that is Jesus Christ in the gospel which sets men and women free. This is the freedom announced by Jesus in the synagogue at the opening of his public ministry. In his first sermon, when he reads from the book of Isaiah and he applies the words directly to himself, and he cites this passage, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom. Freedom is a gospel-centered construct. Freedom for the prisoners, Jesus says. Recovery of sight to the blind to set the oppressed Free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And our Jesus, that Christ, will suffer the shame of the cross to liberate us right from this tawdry pseudo-freedom of self-expression. Paul speaks of this genuine freedom in Christ when he says in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. And Paul goes on and says, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Freedom from sin, freedom for loving service. Freedom from self, freedom for the other. Deep, interior liberation. This is what we mean. Peter uses the same language as Paul. He says here, live as people who are free. And then he continues, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
Truly free people do not use their freedom as a cover-up for evil. Right? Which is a good bit of what our, our, the language in our public discourse currently does. We are now accustomed to justifying the most monstrous evils by an appeal to freedom. But free people live as servants of the living God. Here is the radical cutting edge of the gospel itself. Just notice, beloved, how quickly Peter can start with be subject to the emperor. And in a step and a half, he's at the very heart of the gospel. He's at the bleeding radical edge of the gospel. Servants, because here when he says live as servants, the word for servants means slaves. Free people are slaves. Now that kind of breaks through the various paradigms that mangle our public discourse. Free people are slaves. It would have sounded absurd in the Greco-Roman world to talk like this. Free people are slaves of God. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 6, summarizing, and here in Romans 6, Paul summarizes a lot of what I've been after here. He says this, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap is holiness. The result is eternal life. So this deep liberation creates free people. It creates slaves of God. For one is either a slave of sin, Jesus says, or a slave of righteousness. But slaves we will be. Everybody will be a slave. The question is, will you be a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness? Because man is a worshiping creature. He will either serve God as a truly free person, or he will serve sin in a deluded, degrading, counterfeit version of freedom. So free people are servants, slaves of God. And here, Peter means we are servants of God in subjection to every human institution. That's what the context requires. Subjection of this sort to civil magistrates and in other relations, then, is not a sign of weakness. It is not a sign of conformity. It is the sign of true freedom. And this has not been put better than Luther put it in this famous pithy statement where he says this, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. You get that? I'm free in Christ, I'm subject to none. I will not subject myself to this stuff. A Christian is the perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian, the next sentence from Luther, is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. A Christian is the perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Right? This is free servitude, serving freedom, as Calvin puts it. So freedom, then, this kind of freedom, liberates our consciences from the dictates of men and makes us God's servants, and as such, free people, We are free to serve, indeed, to submit to all. Submission 
is the badge of free people. Do you know where you can get this in the gospel? In an extraordinary passage in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 17, an often overlooked passage. Let me read it to you, a part of it. Jesus is asked... uh, these collectors of the tax, there's a, there's a tax, a two drachma tax. And the, the tax collectors go up to Peter and they say this. <coughs> Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when they came into the house, Jesus spoke to, to Peter saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, when Peter said, from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. So so notice what's going on here. Jesus is asked, are you going to pay the tax or not? And Jesus says, well, who, the kings of the earth, do they collect taxes from their own sons or do they collect them from other people? Peter says, other people. Jesus says, well, then the sons are free. And guess what? I'm the son of the king of the whole earth. I'm the son of God. I'm not subject to these taxes. How could I be subject to these taxes? And Peter, because Jesus eventually is going to include Peter with him, is, is, a, is a son in me. You're lifted up in Christ in the heavenly places. Your politics, your citizenship is in heaven. There's a certain sense in which you're free from that. We don't obey the authorities because of any intrinsic dignity in themselves. We obey them because they have borrowed dignity from the sovereign king of heaven and earth. So Jesus says, sons are free. And if sons are free from taxes, I'm the most free person from taxes. But what does he do? He gets a coin, tells Peter, go ahead, pay the tax. That's submission as a free person. Sure, you want your tax money? I'll give you your tax money. I'm free in Christ. I'm lifted up above this whole fray. But if you want, here's a coin. And by the way, this is taxes for me and for Peter. Right? So that's how we pay taxes. That's how we pay our taxes. Jesus does not think it's too much of a burden to be taxed. So, Hatred of submission is a sign that one is a slave, not a free person. And you're to live as free people. Here's an exercise for you, for the student. Take the Matthew 17 parable I just read. Throw the word tax out. uh, out, Put mask in there. See how it works. Put mask in there. Finally. Verse 17, Peter summarizes what this kind of life looks like in four short commands. They're a fitting application of what we've seen in the text. We heard it in our call to worship. And I'll conclude with them. I want to take them in order. First, look at this. Honor everyone. Honor here is a general word. It means deep respect. Respect all. Treat everyone with dignity as a bearer of the image of God. Just those two words, if we could get them back, we might have some civil discourse. Honor everyone. It sounds simple enough, but who actually does it? I mean, do we honor our civil authorities? 
Do we honor the people in the other party that we disagree with? We're constantly calculating who deserves honor, right? We're constantly living in some graceless realm by some sort of law by which we're calculating who's worthy and who deserves honor and who doesn't deserve honor and who can be written off and who can be condemned and who can be mocked and who's beneath us and who's beyond the pale. And there's this disgusting little game that we play, almost unconscious of the fact that we're doing it because it's just part of American political discourse to do this stuff. But it's deeply corrosive stuff, deeply corrosive. If anything, the gospel would teach that the ones we think are deserving of less honor should receive even more honor. We should go out of our way to honor our enemies, our political foes, our oppressors. We should imitate the one who on the cross said of his murderer's father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. We can't even muster up a charitable word for a political opponent. We have to honor every person. The people that rub us the wrong way. Those evil people. You know those evil people who deserve nothing but our contempt? Like those ignorant and foolish people who are harassing and slandering this church to which Peter is writing? Even them. Even Nero. Honor every last human being zero exceptions. Guess what? There's no exceptions for texting. There's no exceptions for links. There's no exceptions for online presence. Honor every last human being. Zero exceptions. Second, love the brotherhood. Here there is a community, a new family of brothers and sisters bonded in love where more than honor is commanded. Right? Peter's already told us that we've, we've had our hearts purified by the gospel so we can sincerely love one another. Free people love the church. They love it in all of its weakness, in all of its warts. They don't flee the church because it's full of broken people and hypocrites and the like. They see in the church a divine summons, one that they are not Free to escape, but truly free to engage. Love the brotherhood of the church. It's the labor of genuinely free people. Third, fear God. So beyond honoring all and loving the church, God is to be feared. Held in awe, reverenced, worshipped. And this fear... It shouldn't need to be said now, but this fear does not create groveling slaves. It's clean, enduring, liberating fear. It creates free people. People who fear God don't fear men. And by the way, this fear of God, this reverence for God, this is the taproot of being able to honor all, of being able to love the church. For where there is no fear of God, we will surely not honor men. Right? We will surely not love the church with all her flaws. Fourth and finally here, honor the emperor. Same verb used at the beginning of this last verse for honor everyone. Honor everyone. And just in case you didn't get the point of honor everyone, honor the emperor. 
Now, the emperor doesn't get the love shown the church, and he most definitely doesn't get the worship shown to God. But they get the respect. They get the honor due to all. I mean, think of this. Even the pagan powers, which ravaged God's people, they were under his control. They were instruments of his purpose. Right? Bad government is a judgment on our sins. So people should be focused on their own sins and their own need to repent rather than the evils of the government they're under because the powers that you are under are appointed and ordained by God. They are exactly the authorities God wants you to be under in this hour. Honor Nero. That's that's what Peter just said. Honor Cuomo. You know, the Jews offered sacrifices in the temple for the well-being of the emperor. We should be offering spiritual sacrifices in the heavenly temple for our emperors. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We are to offer up prayers and petitions for all in authority. That's what Christians are supposed to be doing. And so the text ends where it began. It ends with subjection to, honor for every lawful human institution, and especially the civil authorities. And by the way, this is repeated at three or four places in the New Testament. Let me give you a great summary of our text from Paul in Titus 3. He, Titus 3, verses 1 and 2 say this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Right? One can hear an echo of Jesus saying, anyone can show perfect courtesy toward their friends. Any, even the Gentiles do that. Anyone can show perfect courtesy toward the people who line up with them. Show perfect courtesy to all people. Because this is what free people do. This is what you are. Live as free people. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as servants, slaves of God in Christ. Amen.